It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here on first down and goal from the one is Lavelle Coppage in untouched for the touchdown. No, maybe the easiest touchdown Lavelle Coppage has ever scored. Burke looking to throw, looking in the end zone, looking for Denton, and he's got him for the touchdown. Each week, those who know Division Three football break down the weekend. There are several teams that seem to have established themselves as elite, and as we get into this postseason, it's going to be, uh, I think, pretty exciting to watch which ones emerge. I don't, I don't think we can say, okay, these two teams are, this should definitely meet in the Stag Bowl, or these four teams should definitely meet in the Final Four. I think it's going to be um, you know, pretty exciting five weeks of playoffs. From the record breakers. Well, Patty, he's been a guy who's averaged eight yards a carry all season. He's been a big play guy, and if you're a frequent listener to the podcast, you, you know this is not the first time that we've had occasion to mention Western Connecticut, Connecticut State, Octavius McCoy. It's actually his third consecutive five-touchdown game. To the surprises on the field. One just out of the blue makes me go, what the hell was that, Wartburg? Wow, congratulations. That's a heck of a way to get into the second round. To the surprises off the field. For the first time in a few years, not surprised, maybe pleasantly surprised that uh, all eight at-large teams that we projected actually got in. It, it seems to me like the NCAA actually followed their own rules correctly. You even hear from those on the sidelines. You know, we had no idea where the record set. I knew he was probably over 400. You know, just by coincidence, we were up two scores late, and uh, you know, he, he had a carry to the sideline, and I'm like, let's get him out of here. We don't want to get him hurt for next week. There is only one place to turn to, the only show that covers the entire Division Three football nation. D3Football.com's Around the Nation podcast. I don't think you, you can argue it now, Pat. You have two dominant teams at the top of Division Three. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. 70 seemed to be the magic number, at least if you were in the top 10. And there were a bunch of teams at 60 once again this week as Keith in this uh, week eight of the uh, 2014 Division Three football season. I don't know, did we see a little separation between the top teams and the rest of the field, or do we just see a demonstration of how much gap there is between those teams that are uh, contending at the top? Uh, well, we can discuss how many of those teams there are, and then uh, the rest of the top 25, and then just the rest of the uh, Division Three population in general? I'd, I'd call it more of a demonstration than a, uh, than a revelation. Um, we've known, you know, for the past several seasons that there are in any given year, five to seven really elite teams, but I think it's been so very pronounced this year. And at least in the past few weeks where you see some of the numbers that the best teams are putting up, uh, it's, it's getting outrageous. And I, I think when there are 244 teams, there's bound to be some a, a gap between the, the best of the best and the middle of the pack or the lower middle of the pack or the bottom of the pack. But um, but it but it's just the, the you know, seeing the 70s on the board, I think, is really eye popping. I think there's multiple packs too. even. Let's be honest. Um, one of the things that uh, I was asked today, completely unrelated to almost anything that happened in the top 10 was, you know, one of that age old question, where does Division three kind of compare to the NAIA? And uh, you know, one of the things that I we keep uh, I keep thinking about and I think we've talked about it before is I think maybe the top of the NAIA is better than the, the rest of Division three and the bottom of the NAIA is maybe worse than the worst of Division three. But still, there's such a wide gap um, and you, you know you see it where uh, Mary Harden Baylor beats a previously unbeaten team by 56, and that's almost not the most eye-popping, uh, you know, eye-popping result of this of the weekend. 
No, I mean, there were, you could, well, I don't know. I think that actually might be the most eye-popping result of the weekend. But um, there's certainly a, a bunch of numbers, again, that jumped off the scoreboard where you, where you just, you know, were like, <laughs> these, I, I, I got to be honest, I, I kind of glazed past them because there are so many games and you see, you know, like Wabash up by 40 at halftime. Well, you know, you're like, all right, I'm not going to pay a whole lot of attention to that game when you have, you know, uh, we, uh, Widener and Lyco in the midst of a good game or um, uh, who else was playing early that was in a, in a really good game, Ithaca and Salisbury. Like, they're, you know, from a lot of probably fan standpoint, you're probably just following your one team or you're following the, the teams in your conference, you know, if your team plays later or whatever. But for, for those of us who don't have one particular rooting interest and, you're, you know, bouncing from game to game, it's, it's so easy to just n- not even care about, you know, Mount Union crushing Wilmington because because that's, um, you know, it's kind of what's expected and you see the score and it gets out of hand early. And you do, I just I just sort of bounce to to some of the more competitive games. And there were a bunch of those on Saturday. Like the guy on Twitter who keeps asking uh, about John Carroll, is it impressive that they win by 69 or 70 or 80? It's like, you know, if it's more than 45 or frankly, if it's more than 30, I don't really think it matters. Uh, at that point, it's all just window dressing. Nope, I don't. I don't differentiate. I, I wouldn't differentiate forty-two seven, sixty-three seven, seventy-three seven. You know, it's all a blowout to me. I, honestly, when I'm looking at um, balloting, when I'm getting ready to do my ballot, I, I will look if a if a score games within one score, if it was within two to three scores, or if it was three or more scores. You know, so they're all blowouts once you get past say 28 7 35 7 30, you know 63 0 i mean what difference does it make because there are definitely cases and we see this on saturday where teams take their foot off the gas in the second quarter in the third quarter at some point in the fourth quarter you know st john fisher 60 61 0 against alfred state i mean if they play their the starters the whole game if mountain union plays the starters the whole game against wilmington who knows what the final really would be and no, nobody's advocating that we're just saying it's hard to come it's hard to compare or or even care about scores you know once the margin gets in gets into the 50s or 60s right i believe the mountain union starters were out with nine minutes to go in the first quarter on saturday if i uh remember correctly uh, uh or pretty first, close first to half. it <laughs> first half oh it could be first half you're right I could have read that wrong. Uh, Ed Runke uh, sets a, a, a Division three record for kick points in a game, by the way. Um, but uh, talking about the Mary Harden-Baylor-Texas Lutheran game, for example, uh, I was 45-6 at the half, and yeah, that's the point at which I tuned out. So anything that happens after that, I didn't specifically lay eyes on. I'm just relying on the box score at that point. But uh, it really looked like uh, it was, again, Mary Harden-Baylor's speed, especially speed on defense, that was uh, that was uh, something that Texas Lutheran couldn't really handle. I know Marion Baylor was credited with four pass breakups, but every for every time I heard the Texas Lutheran broadcasters complain about how lucky it was that Mary Harden Baylor tipped a ball, it sure seemed like it was a lot more than that. And it's not lucky when you tip and deflect a pass. That's I, I'm under the impression, and you can tell me as a you know a former defensive back, I'm under the impression that's actually good defense. I'd like to think so, and uh, you know. It happened several times in that game. Mary Harden Baylor had five turnovers. Um, three of those were were interceptions. And you know Texas Lutheran on the first two drives they they kicked two field goals 
early on the first couple drives. Hit a couple big plays. Had one uh, big 33-yard run by Marquise Baroli. And um, they hit a long pass on the second drive. And they got inside the, the red zone, maybe even inside the 10-yard line. Um, and there was a there was one of those pass breakups where it was, um, or maybe it wasn't even a breakup, but it was a, a completion where probably against a lot of teams in D3, you hit the quick the quick slant and the, the receiver scoots into the end zone. And this one was was such a bang-bang play. It was like hit, the pass was completed, tackle, boom. It, it was wrapped up, and it was like a four-yard gain instead of a touchdown. And that is the difference as you get as you start to play these really elite teams. The stuff that happens easily against the average teams in your conference, it doesn't happen against those great teams. And we've seen it over the years when we watch Mountain Union and Whitewater and Wesley and Mary Harden Baylor and Linfield and whoever the best team in the in the MIAC is in any given year. Um, the team, the, the really really good teams, don't make turnovers, right? They dominate the line and they are they have such great team speed that it makes really really good teams look average. Is it possible to figure out? And, and uh, we're going to kind of really glaze over Wesley playing Virginia Lynchburg and beating them 75 12, and probably glaze over John Carroll beating Capital 71 7, and maybe even uh, Wabash over Oberlin 70 10, and kind of focus on the bigger picture here. Is it really possible to figure out where the gap is between the <laughs> the haves and the really super haves? Uh, you know, is it, uh, you, if, you, if, you were, if we were to just look at the scores on a weekly basis, uh, John Carroll is blowing the doors off of people, and they're in a, uh, they're in one of our top five conferences. And then there's uh, Hobart at the top of the Liberty League, which, you know, to its credit, I guess, uh, or you know, however you want to think about it, they don't blow the doors off of people, but they do continue to keep winning. And uh, Johns Hopkins below them is pretty similar. Is that where the gap is, with the possible exception of you know maybe? Once the Minnesota conference shakes itself out, someone might jump into that upper group. Maybe someone from the Empire Eight might belong in that group once we find out who they are. Yeah, and and maybe the CCIW would be the other conference who who would have a team uh, rise up. And and it may not even happen at the at the, the last time we take the poll. It may be a couple weeks into the playoffs where we see because this is where we see the the separation happen between the the really really good teams and the great teams in D3 and you know right now if you look at the poll you'd say the top 5 you draw a line i think between Linfield and then Wartburg, John Carroll, Hobart, Johns Hopkins, Wabash which who are all obviously not not just top 10 teams but really outstanding teams they're all unbeaten and but you have you know we have Johns Hopkins uh, fans and John Carroll fans tweeting at us on Twitter saying, why aren't these guys ranked higher? Well, the, the, the relevant way to look at it is, is the same way you look at why wasn't Texas Lutheran, which was 6-0, and why weren't they ranked higher? Because it, it doesn't matter until you do it. it we're, now we're talking top five here. It doesn't matter until you do it against another top five team. John Carroll has that opportunity at the end of the season against Mount Union. Th- that, that, that spot where they're at you know, you can you can win the next four games eighty to nothing, and you you can't really get any higher than than you are right now until you do it against Mountain Union. Yeah, and is it so? If, if we draw the line between Linfield and Warburg, I notice we're drawing the line between. Well, I mean, actually, Warburg won a playoff game last year. John Carroll didn't. Uh, is that part of the uh, is that part of the scenario as well? Or are we talking about you know those five teams or the five teams who have been around 
and successful for several years, and Warburg and John Carroll just haven't proven themselves as much in the postseason yet. Is that a is that a um, a consideration? Yeah, and and I would even allow for for us to put that line below Warburg and and, and ahead of John Carroll if we're talking about past playoff success. And this is where we kind of have to play both sides of the fence. And the reason we do it is because it's proven to be a a a, a legitimate, I guess form of analysis over the years is you you see teams and the best teams in the best conferences win in the postseason and that's where they earn that respect and it's it's hard to say it's hard to go to John Carroll this year and say okay um you guys got bounced in the first round last year therefore this year's team doesn't deserve that respect yet but at the same time you look at all these other programs and you and every one of them ahead of them has done it in the playoffs, you know, has done it three, four, five rounds into the playoffs. And you say, well, how can you justify putting John Carroll in there ahead of them unless you're just going and just, unless you're just running a computer program that is, is is taking margin of victory into account? If I'm just running a program that does that, I'm also probably throwing out 25 tweets in the span of about 50 minutes. Yeah. Uh, I know where you're going with that, and I'm just going to let it be. <laughs> uh, so... Um, yeah, so there were some other uh, good games in the top 25, certainly, to be sure. Let's uh, start with a clip. This is Rusty Lindsay on the call for WETN in the Little Brass Bell game. The noise you hear comes from the North Central sideline. Cody has it teed up. He gives a nod to Pelts. Pelts calls for snap. Good snap. Hold down. Kick away. It's good. Wheaton wins the bell. And Luke Thorson's in a dead sprint to the sideline to go get it. Sam Cody, the right foot of the Thunder senior, has won it for the Thunder. Unbelievable football game here at McCulley Stadium. The students are storming out on the field. Unbelievable finish here in the 2014 Battle for the Bell. Wheaton wins back the little brass bell with a uh, field goal as time expires to uh, to beat North Central. Uh, Bethel went out on a 21 nothing lead on St. Thomas, and then St. Thomas switched quarterbacks again, got back into that game, but Bethel put it away with a bruising drive to end it. Uh, you mentioned that Widener-Lyco game. Uh, Whitewater, uh, you know, the score doesn't uh, impress against Wisconsin-Oshkosh, but Oshkosh might be, uh, might, the, might be the best team that uh, Whitewater's played this year, too. Yeah, and, and Oshkosh kind of has a, a misleading record because those first three losses were were non-division games. But you look at look at the box score on that one, and you know they they held they played a, a normal score against Whitewater, which is rare, and it's rare against all these teams in the top ten. You know, who are, Whitewater is just as capable of scoring sixty or seventy as anyone else. Um, but Oshkosh, you know, the yardage was nearly even, but they had four turnovers. Uh, another Brady Gravold interception for Whitewater, a fairly good day defensively, although they were they were outrushed. You know, that uh, the weird thing is White, Whitewater won that game 24-7, and that stands out as an anomaly. You, you look at Whitewater now and you say, well, you, you lose you lose 24-7 and all these other teams are, are winning, you know, by 50. Does that make them vulnerable for, for somebody to to – Pull a pull a um, number one vote. Switch one of their number one votes in the ballot. We saw it happen last week. Uh, Mount Union picked up a number one vote, and Whitewater had the other twenty four. So you know, as much as you don't want to rely on margin of victory, I think it, it, it's human nature for for voters to do that. Um, I, I I got a chance to to watch pretty much the whole second half of of the Wheaton North Central game, and um, it was it was outstanding. You know, Wheaton comes out. 
in the second half. It was a one-point game at halftime. Wheaton pretty much dominates most of the third quarter, goes up by 15. North Central puts together a nice drive, a kind of a risky uh I guess not a risky call, but at the fourth down, fourth and five, ball, uh, ball is tipped. Uh, pretty sure by a defensive lineman, may have been a linebacker. Uh, still hits the the North Central receiver in stride as he's. Uh, they they kind of ran a clear out and then ran him underneath. So he's crossing the field. He catches it in stride off a tip pass on fourth and maybe been fourth and eight, but you know fourth and in medium catches it in stride, takes down the sideline touchdown. Then North Central at this point is down by nine. They. they couldn't decide whether they were going to kick it or go for two, um, which, you know, in that situation, nine is usually the, the consensus wisdom is uh, you kick it to make it eight. And then, you, you know, you go you don't have you don't go for two until you have to. Now, so, some coaches think, well, you go for two early because that way you find out if you have to score twice, you don't put it all on the the last conversion. But I think the consensus wisdom is if you can make it a one score game as in eight, you do that. So North central d- decided they didn't want to do that. They ran a, um, a play. Wheaton penetrates the backfield has uh, Dylan Warden all wrapped up. He kind of throws a wild throw into the end zone and um, defensive holding pass interference, whichever one it, it was, uh, ends up giving them another shot at it, so they run it in from the one and a half. Ends up being a seven-point game. Anyway, North Central drives down, scores again. Then Wheaton gets the ball back with five minutes left, basically milks the entire clock, sets up a perfect game-winning field goal, kicks kicks the game-winning field goal, win the little brass bell back, storm the field. Uh, all is different in CCIW land. <laughs> uh, we're here. Uh, we're going to hear again about milking the clock because that uh, comes up a, a, a couple of times on Saturday. Um, Keith, uh, as we move into the uh, rest of the podcast, I had thought about setting the countdown for 70 seconds instead of two minutes, but I'm not sure either one of us could uh, could could get through this rundown in a minute 10 instead of uh, two even. So I just uh, thought in honor of the number 70, which was so big on Saturday, we might go that direction. But uh, I'm I'm going to go against that. Oh, I get it now. I didn't even get it when you first said it. That's pretty good. Yeah. Can you count to 70? Yes, yes, I can. But we're going to go to uh, the full 120 seconds as we start by handing out game balls. Uh, mine's going to go to safety Dan Pierce of Middlebury. He had 12 tackles, a pair of interceptions, and one and a half tackles for loss as the Panthers won at Trinity, Connecticut, 27 to 7. First home loss for the Bantams since 2001. That ends a 53-game home win streak. Once that was the uh, longest active winning streak in Division Three, but since uh, Trinity's in the NESCAC and they only play eight games, four home games a year, uh, that streak got passed by Mount Union some time ago. Mount Union last uh, lost at home in 2000, uh, 2005. Now I got myself re, uh, rethinking that every time I say that. So Pierce had an interception that turned into a 14-point swing as he intercepted a ball in the end zone, returned it out 71 yards, and Middlebury scored four plays later to go up 13 to nothing. This uh, streak for Trinity just kind of kept trundling along, even though there was a, there were some big battles uh, and they were not the sole team at the top of the NESCAC anymore. And it was uh, Middlebury, a team that uh, was in that group last year and has a couple of losses already this year, that was the one that knocked him off. Yeah, you you almost would have expected that from Middlebury in the years when they had uh, McCallum Foot at quarterback. Um, trundling, that's that's a real word, trundling along? Sure. Okay, I, I don't know if I heard that one, and, and here I deal with words for a living. Well, if not, uh, we can check the dictionary and you can tweet that at us. That could be our uh, our made-up word of the week. You also had like a, a super a super elite or something at the beginning of the podcast that I thought could be the made-up word. Um 
My game ball goes to Wheaton quarterback Johnny Peltz. Um, Peltz, of course, is a famous name in Wheaton sports history, as is Swider. Uh, Peltz on Saturday, 22 of 28, no interceptions, didn't take any sacks. And uh, two of the incompletions, uh, he only had six incompletions on the day. Two of them came on the final drive. One, he hit his receiver in his hands, and it just kind of skipped off the, the tips of the fingertips. Would have been a big completion. Another one was a, was a deep post Great call. It, they had him wide open, and he just overthrew it down the middle. Happens even to to the best of quarterbacks. But I thought uh, Johnny Peltz had a uh, a great day. Perfectly managed the final drive that set up Sam Cody's short game winning field goal. Uh, I think it was a twenty nine yarder. Uh, he milked the final four fifty three off the clock, so they got the ball back at thirty one all, and and really perfectly managed the clock to to set up Cody's field goal. Um, at, at the end of that game. And, and I think the, the icing on top of this uh, game ball is uh, the fact that Peltz really has only been the starter now for, I guess, two two or three games for Wheaton. Uh, Reese Butler had, had, uh, had been the starter. Andrew Bowers had played against Augustana. And this win, you know, puts, uh, puts a Thunder back at the top of the CCIW. Puts him in line for a playoff spot. Of course, they, they still have to beat Elmhurst, but uh, that performance was was good enough for my game ball. Although, I will say, if I hadn't already given a game ball to someone who had a game-winning blocked point after, as MIT's Anthony Emberley did on Saturday, I probably would have put that under consideration as well. I could see that, absolutely. In fact, I thought about that when I uh, saw the name of who, uh, who, had, uh, who had blocked that. Um, my team on the rise for this week... Uh, I'm going to go with Bethel. I'm not sure if we have a lot of room for them to actually move up in the rankings, but I've seen enough of them to think of them at least ahead of Wabash. It's just hard to move up when there's nobody up there losing or even being challenged, as we spent uh, a good 10 minutes talking about just a few minutes ago. Uh, Bethel is one of those teams that had uh, one of those final drives to run out the entire clock. Uh, they converted a couple of third downs and a couple of fourth downs in a 16-play drive that ate up all but the last 1.3 seconds of the game, and they scored that touchdown with 1.3 seconds left to make it a 35-24 win against St. Thomas on Saturday. You know, Bethel took that dive when they didn't look great against uh, Wartburg in Week 2. That was Bethel's first game. It was Wartburg's second. Wartburg's done nothing but win since then, so we kind of continually rethink you know, how good that loss is or how bad a loss is or how good a win is, for that matter, if you're Warburg. And I think that uh, that Warburg-Bethel game is stacks up. We have them ranked uh, 6 and 11 coming out of this week. And like I said, I don't know where Bethel might go, but I will be uh, pushing them higher, at least on my ballot. Well, it certainly helps Warburg every time Bethel continues to win, especially as strong as the Mayak is and we're getting to the point in the season now where we'll start talking about opponents winning percentage and opponents opponents winning percentage because that's playoff criteria and and every Bethel win helps Warburg not just aesthetically as as we look at it uh, as voters but it'll help them in the playoff picture as well. Um, my risers in the poll and and just like you said, Pat. Not a whole lot of, of space for them to move up, but Wheaton and Widener, I think, should each bump up a few spots after the big wins on Saturday. Uh, North Central, which was number 12, uh, they'll drop down. Wheaton was 17. Widener was, was 16. Um, you know, we didn't really mention much about the Widener game, but another huge game from Anthony Davis, quarterback Seth Klein, Widener defense uh, played well. And they've really been been under the radar because Widener is such a offense-oriented team, but 34-17 at Lycoming. That puts them uh, on course to meet DelVal in Week 11 in the Keystone Cup game for the possible MAC title. 
Uh, I thought, though, if I have a couple seconds left, there, there are a couple of other, you know, possible interesting pole pieces of movement, potential pole pieces of movement. Um, you know, Mary Harden Baylor could uh, could steal one or, or more uh, first place vote, as I mentioned earlier, with uh, Whitewater score looking pedestrian and, and the crew smashing a previously unbeaten team. Texas Lutheran's votes, they, they had the most votes of the also receiving votes crew. Those will probably be redistributed. You know, I, I personally, I had Texas Lutheran in the teens, so they're going to drop down on my ballot. And, uh, you know, maybe Amherst, the, uh, the lone unbeaten team in the NESCAC, picks up a few of those votes. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see if uh, how many votes Texas Lutheran uh, hangs on to. And, you know, TLU uh, ranked 17 in the coaches poll, which is one of the rare times I ever mentioned the coaches poll on the website, but I did today just to kind of point out the difference. Um, you know, generally a, a loss in the coaches poll, any loss in the coaches poll costs about 12 spots. So expect them to drop out. I suspect that they will still get votes, but obviously they're not going to get all uh, some team that uh, they were getting from Keith McMillan. So maybe they will make up for a few of them somewhere else. I don't know. A uh, team that will take a fall this week. I, I always like to talk about teams that don't lose who might uh, still get be worthy of reconsideration anyway. And for me, that's Wisconsin-Stevens point. So I get that they won. It's just hard to imagine that they can kind of keep con- uh, and continue to win the way that they've been uh, playing on offense of late. Pointers threw another four picks on Saturday, and really the only reason they beat lacrosse is because lacrosse threw four picks as well. So that's one reason why I think uh, Stevens Point might slide a little bit. But also remember, as we continue to reevaluate things that happened earlier, uh, North Central lost on Saturday. And that means the value of that Stevens Point close home win versus the Cardinals is a little bit less as well as we uh, go into voting uh, at the end of week eight here. Yeah, and, and as most of the top 25 continues to win, we won't see a ton of movement. But uh, I think uh, St. Thomas has a chance to fall out of the poll because they were kind of stuck in that that glut of, of Mayak teams that we were waiting to get some separation between St. John's, Concordia, Moorhead, and St. Thomas. They were ranked 20 through 22 the past couple of weeks. But uh, you know, sticking with your theme of, of teams that won but, uh, but may still drop a little bit in the poll, I think uh, we should point out W&J, which was ranked 18th, uh, right behind Wheaton and Widener. They were in control the whole way against, uh, against Case Western at home, against Case Western Reserve. I'm going to properly say that um, they were in control the whole way in that game, but the finals was just 34-24. And so I think if you're just glancing at scores instead of really digging uh, deep when you, when you do your ballot, you know, it just doesn't look that great when W&J's beaten um, Case Western Reserve 34-24 and you have Wheaton beating North Central, you have Widener beating Lycoming, uh, you know, it, by double digits. Those two teams are, are liable to bump up, and I think W&J may, may drop down a little bit. St. Thomas losing on the road to a team that's ranked 11 spots ahead of it. I think they will drop a little bit. Uh, of course, they could pop right back in the following week because they play Concordia Moorhead as, uh, as uh, you know, those teams continue to play off against each other. So St. Thomas uh, probably dropping out, probably uh, has a shot to get right back in it. And I was a little bit worried as I was listening to that game on the local radio on Saturday thinking if St. Thomas comes back and wins this game, what are the voters going to do with that mess? Are they going to, would they, you know, as you move up St. Thomas. Not every voter is going to remember to move up St. John's that beat them, but thankfully, I guess, for the polls' sake, uh, Bethel hung on in that game and uh, you know made the poll look good, which is all, all I care about, right? You love it when the poll looks good. I love it when the poll looks good. 
Off the beaten path. How about Hiram uh, winning its fourth game for the first time since 1995? The Terriers haven't finished 500 or better since 88, but the year before that, 1987, they went 8-1 and one in the regular season and actually made the Division Three playoffs. Uh, so Hiram beat Ohio Wesleyan 42-35. Robert Partridge had a great day at quarterback for the Terriers, 22 of 35 for 308 yards, three touchdowns, and he added 42 rushing yards as well. Yeah, we talked about Hiram. Uh, you know, quite a while back, uh, for what, five or six weeks ago, they came out of the gate really well. Then they lost three in a row and they've won two in a row again to be above 500 at four and three. I'm going off the beaten path to Storm Lake, Iowa, which uh, it's weird that I even know that, right? Um, Buena Vista, uh, Dylan Barrett scored the winning touchdown with 36 seconds left in a 44-39 thriller against Dubuque. Uh, Dubuque had scored with about 90 seconds left. They kicked a field goal to go up in that game. And uh, that makes five straight wins for the Beavers since losing their first two to still-ranked Concordia Moorhead and Wisconsin-Platteville by a combined 93-12. They lost the first game to Platteville 63-3. But uh, as we mentioned at the time, I believe, on the podcast, uh, after the, after those Opening two games for Buena Vista, there was a stretch where they could do pretty well, and they've won five straight now. So they've clinched their first season of 500 or better since going seven or th- seven and three back in 2008. But they finished with Wartburg, Central, and Co. So no guarantee they'll win again. But they are atop the uh, the IIAC at the moment. Buena Vista has won eight conference games in a row. They won their last four to finish last season, and they won their first four to begin this season. So, yeah, great uh, great times in Storm Lake, Iowa. My sister-in-law went to Buena Vista, so if I, hadn't, uh, if I hadn't been doing this, I still would have heard of Storm Lake, Iowa, but I might not have known how to pronounce the name of the university. So, uh-huh. yeah, Buena Vista, not Buena, for those of you who are just joining us. Um, most surprising result. I'm going to go even deeper than some of the ones we've talked about already and pull out, how about Westminster, Missouri, defeating Northwestern 24-13, Northwestern had just gotten the uh, Greenville monkey off of its back last week, and they weren't likely to win the UMAC title, but at least they were still in the hunt before this. Uh, That loss really takes them out of the race into a three-way tie for third with Westminster. And uh, Iowa Wesleyan, which is having a surprising season as well, is is in that uh, three-way tie for third. So Westminster limited Northwestern to nine for 22 passing, forced the Eagles to settle for a couple of short field goals. And after the Blue Jays took a two-score lead with just under about eight minutes to go, Northwestern fumbled the ball away twice down the stretch. Keith, I always thought that as this league, the UMAC grew geographically, that there would be a lot of teams that would struggle with the trip to Westminster uh, because it's, you know, it's quite a trip. Um, but up until, you know, in the last couple of years, it really hadn't been to, uh, much of an issue for too many teams. But uh, here, Westminster at uh, five and three, five and two in the league, and uh, they picked off Northwestern on Saturday. Yeah, my most surprising result. I guess there were there were a handful of results that were semi-surprising. Maranatha Baptist had a result, which is pleasantly surprising, even though it was a 62-0 loss to one of the Concordias. That's not a D3 member, but uh, but at least they got a game in this week, which um, you know may sound like we're poking fun, but I think for as much as that program tries to to hang on, you know, I always give respect 
for for never dropping football and for for at least still trying to play every week. Um, I thought the the Mary Harden Baylor margin was a surprise, seventy two sixteen. I thought you know I even thought I even mentioned in triple take that I that I thought uh, UMHB might is ex, is expected to win big, even though it was a huge opportunity for Texas Lutheran. But but that margin was a shocker, and I was a little bit surprised by by Montclair State beating Rowan. But if I'm forced to settle on one surprising result, for yes, this, settle. Uh, I'm going to go with Geneva um, coming off of four straight losses, beating Bethany, which had won five in a row before a loss to W&J last week. Uh, I guess the Bison had that uh, deflating hangover from from the big defeat. You know, when you get to a point where you think you have a chance at winning a conference title, and I'm sure Bethany felt that way going into W&J last week, once that dream is gone, it's very tough to get up for that next game last week, and Geneva took advantage. You know, it is, it's a really difficult place to play. Uh, we don't, there's no box score up from that game uh, as of uh, the time that we're recording this podcast, which is about uh, four hours after the game ended. Um, but, you know, uh, Geneva really draws uh, quite well. So it, sometimes that's a really tough place to play. And then you said something else that I wanted to mention. Oh, Maranatha Baptist played this week, but they canceled the game against uh, Alfred State. However, uh, that that's coming up next week. However, Alfred State... Uh, you know, already committed to making the trip to the Midwest, is going to play Wash U uh, as Wash U had its game against uh, Maranatha canceled uh, last week. So uh, they had, a, a, I guess, a, a mutual open date. And Alfred State, uh, for the, I guess, the second year in a row, is going to step in where somebody had, a, uh, somebody had an open date because of a game being canceled. Yeah, I remember they did it last year. It was Rochester and uh, and the situation that was going on with um, Merchant Marine with, with the government shutdown last year, which, boy, I'm glad we don't have to deal with that one again. <laughs> well, you live there. I'm even more glad for you. My stat of the week is going to go to Leandre Simmons. He was the leading receiver of Springfield passes this week. Problem is he plays for the other team. Uh, that's St. Lawrence, which humbled the pride 21 to seven and improved to six and one. So Springfield was one of seven passing and they threw three interceptions. Uh, two of them were picked off by Sibbon. So the saints turned the uh, first pick into a 16 play 89 yard touchdown drive. Importantly, keeping the Springfield offense off the field for seven minutes as well. And the second one started another seven-minute drive, and that ran out the clock on the game. So Simmons not only caught two passes from Springfield, he also caught a pass from uh, St. Lawrence's Mike Luffelbein on offense, and he had a TD catch called back because of a penalty. And and by the way, yeah, as I mentioned, St. Lawrence is 6-1 and one that game against Hobart coming up later. Pat, you know we don't confer on our, on our picks, um, but it's a little bit scary how similarly we were thinking on this one. Um, I'll, I'll get to where the similarity is in just a second. Okay. Maine Maritime won 17 games in uh, in 2009 and 2010. They were a playoff and a playoff caliber team those years. And then they just right off the, the deep end. You know, Jim Bowers was gone and uh, probably had some great senior classes that they weren't able to replicate. Suddenly they were down to just one win. Uh, between 2012 and 2013 combined. Now they're on their way back this year. They're three and three, but they're still kind of up and down. At the end of September, remember the Mariners allowed 803 yards of offense and 80 points oh, to Western New England. I tried on, to forget that. Yeah, on Saturday they they put up 604 yards of their own. They scored 42 points in the first half of a 62-43 win against Nichols. Now, 145 of those yards came in the air for a triple option team on just five completions, and this is where we have the similarities. Um, you know, we we. 
the triple option teams are the, the the stat the numbers they put up are just so wacky because um because they they'll have these 400 yard rushing days and and then that'll be all their offense well um the Mar- the main maritime hit a couple of big passes on uh, on Saturday and it certainly helped in in beating the bison uh, and and you know the whole result obviously the comparison between giving up 80 to western new england and then scoring 62 of their own against nichols just goes to show you how quickly fortunes can change that's right. Don't give up if you lose eighty to nothing, or eighty to sixteen, <clears throat> or eighty to whatever. sixteen, whatever. Yeah. Well, there was. It's not the only eighty that's gotten put up this season either. Um, as much as uh, of all the seventies that we had on Saturday, we've had a couple of eighties this season also. Um, let's see. I think we had a better triple take week than we might have had previously. Um, you know, Ryan Tips obviously nailed uh, the uh, little brass bell game as the game of the week. I put out you know uh east texas baptist at louisiana college is surprisingly close because i wanted to get that out there as a game of the week possibility as well uh and i thought that uh that went pretty well you picked uh endicott to revive their playoff hopes and you picked you picked wisconsin river falls to not only win a wyatt game you picked them to win by 10 or more and you got it you covered exactly on the 10 though it was 20 to 10 and part of the reason for that pick is that uh Wisconsin Eau Claire, their their offense was uh, has been pretty shaky. That they are actually one of the worst offenses in the country. So it, it wouldn't take a whole bunch from uh, from River Falls to to score that one. Um, yeah, I like the Bell game and Pat. You you had Ithaca reviving their hopes, and uh, Ithaca got some of the help they needed from uh, from Utica. So now they're they're right back in the Empire Eight mix. Um, and I think you hit a a, a non playoff team as well that won by ten or more. Yeah, I think, did I pick Heidelberg? You picked Heidelberg, and you also um, highlighted McAllister somewhere in there, and they had a big win as well. Yep, McAllister stays uh, unbeaten in the Midwest Conference North, and they face off against Carroll next week. They host Carroll next weekend in a battle of a 7-0 and a 6-1 and team this late in the season in the Midwest Conference. Um, on the other side, yeah, I think uh, Texas Lutheran, Mary Harden, Baylor wasn't exactly the game of the week, and we did double down on that. It does have some bearing on the playoff race, at least, so at least we got something out of it. Yeah, and, and I think now that Pool B picture is really going to be um, interesting to watch because let's, you know, center one on Saturday, and, and now they're a strong Pool B candidate. You'll, of course, have Wesley at the top of that group, and now you may have Texas Lutheran again even though they went out and improved their schedule, added UMHB this year, they, they may get stuck again on the outside looking in. It would be nice to know for sure exactly how many Pool B teams we're going to have this year. So if the NCAA could figure out whether the SAA and the MASCAC are getting those automatic bids that you have said that, they, uh, that they're supposed to get, which not both of them are supposed to get, uh, that, would be, that would be good. I think the teams that are chasing Pool B bids here through eight weeks of the season, through 73% of the regular season, really deserve to know an answer for sure. So I'm um, just going to throw that out there. One last time, because last time for today, at least, as we head into the flash drive, our, uh, our uh, sprint to the finish here, which has not been so sprinty, in past weeks, but we'll try to sprint even faster here. Is uh, we'll start with Hampton Sydney. Hampton Sydney was uh, looking like they wanted to spot Shen into a lot of points. They only ended up spotting them ten, and then they scored thirty-one of the next thirty-four, and uh, going on to beat Shen into a forty-five twenty-seven, avenging a, a loss that they uh, suffered in a previous year. 
Yeah, no, no repeat of uh, of that one from last year. They lost uh, 36-35 in a game they were kind of in control of last year, and then gave it away. Uh, Anthony Emberley mentioned him briefly earlier in the in the podcast, but he blocked that extra point attempt with 42 seconds left to lift MIT to a 35-34 win over Western New England. Interesting side note in that one: MIT led 21 nothing early. Western New England stormed back, and you figure you score the the what you think is the game tying touchdown because we always assume the those PATs are automatic. Well, Anthony Emberley reminded us for the second time in a few weeks here, because uh, it also happened at Frostburg State Ithaca, that those PATs are not automatic. That was a battle of unbeatens in the uh, New England Football Conference. Trying with its uh, third straight close game, another high-scoring shootout, uh, 51-45 win this week after a 49-46 loss and a 46-42 win, and Trine uh, remains in that group at the top of the MIAA, although they're 5-2 and two overall. Yeah, they got to be biting all their nails off, it, it, and you know the Trine Thunder fans because uh, they, you know they're, you're clapping one second for touchdowns and and uh, giving up a touchdown the next second. Uh, Ithaca only gave up one touchdown on Saturday. They handled Salisbury uh, 32 to seven, and then the, that Utica upset beating Buff State. Um, that now leaves everyone in the Empire with two conference losses, except for St. John Fisher, which is four and one in conference, six and one overall. So you figure maybe they'll be maybe they can uh, run away with it. Well. Look at who they close with, Buffalo State, Ithaca, and Alfred. So they may well end up with a second conference loss as well. It's, again, uh, Butterfield Stadium where the triple option goes to die. The thing I tried to say on the podcast last week and did not have uh, quite the uh, the wordsmithing I needed. Uh, Montclair State, uh, they beat Rowan. They're in control of the NJAC. I don't know how down Montclair was over the last couple years. Uh, they had struggled to do anything on offense. And, you know, at the beginning of the season when they lost to Delaware Valley, it's like you could think it was the exact same thing. And, again, that's a game we reevaluate. Now they lost to Delaware Valley. doesn't look nearly so bad. And, uh, yeah, Montclair State's on top of the New Jersey, New Jersey Athletic Conference. Yeah, that, that was definitely surprising. I kind of just expected Rowan to, to send Montclair State back to the middle of the pack. Uh, another team that, was, that had been really good and had reverted to the middle of the pack was Elmhurst. And now all of a sudden um, they're tied uh, with Wheaton atop the uh, CCIW, which is sort of strange because um, a couple years ago Elmhurst was really good. They, they slid back last year and we kind of just assumed – they were going to stay back there because they had come from the middle of the pack, you know. Um, but there they are atop the conference and, uh, and a chance to have an impact on this thing. Yep. Elmhurst hasn't played North Central or Wheaton, so they could go back to maybe not the middle of the pack, but uh, or they could uh, com- play complete spoilers or win it for themselves. And I kept talking. Uh, so Trinity's home loss gives Amherst sole control of the NESCAC. Uh, and Amherst still has to play. Well, of course, they still have to play. Uh, both of their little three rivals, right? They still have to play Wesleyan and, nope, they beat Wesleyan already. So they have Trinity, Connecticut on the road this week. And then Williams, just two games left in the NESCAC season. Yeah, can you, it's hard, hard to believe that they start latest and, and they finish earliest. But uh, for a conference that had three undefeated teams just a few weeks ago, it's, uh, it's certainly interesting that Amherst is in sole control. So not sure if... Uh, you know, the offense has just got tired in that game. You mentioned the main maritime Nichols game. They combined for 92 points in the first 43 minutes of that game and then just watched one touchdown apiece in the last 17 minutes. Uh, it was a 62-43 win. Keith, I, I, you know, you think about um, adjustments. I don't think you make adjustments at that late in the game. I really do think teams just tire out. Well, certainly if, if you're running the ball like every single play, uh, it certainly can, uh, can tend to tire you out. 
And uh, Andrew Franks nearly got shorted a yard on his school record field goal for RPI. He hit from 54 yards to end the first half. RPI, at least on Twitter, credited as just a 53-yarder. But I was uh, I was watching that game, and I went back to check. Uh, and uh, indeed, as I scrolled back, the, it was a 54-yarder. So uh, um, I believe the, the box score looked right. Regardless, there's a really big leg on that guy. My goodness. Yeah, for sure. Uh, how about Lebanon Valley beating Wilkes 46 uh, nothing? This is interesting for two reasons. Of course, Leb Valley picking up just its second win of the season. And then this is also the Wilkes offense that had got 112 plays off in a game a few weeks back. How they get shut out uh, is, is sort of hard to believe. So uh, tip of the hat to, to Lebanon Valley for that one. And a wag of the... No, sorry. No tip of the hat wag of the finger on this show. Um, Pacific's first shutout in 42 years. They beat George Fox 36 to nothing. Uh, George Fox 0-6 this season, and uh, I think it's safe to say they are not living up to the standards that their marketing department set for them over the summer with all those billboards all over uh, East Western Oregon. But, uh, you know, at, at least they're excited about having football back. I hope they're still excited. It's not been an exciting uh, six weeks for them. Well, you do have to have kind of modest expectations going in the first year, you, you, you know, comparing them to P- Pacific, who's now, um, f- I'm already forgetting, their fifth year, right? Year five, yeah. <laughs> We've mentioned it pretty much every <laughs> podcast. I was going to say, <laughs> that should be part of the drinking game, actually, is a year four or a year five reference. Well, that's what I was getting confused with, you know, because Stevenson is also, the you know, we, we talk about them frequently, and which one's the year four, which one's year five, are they both year five, who, I don't know, there's so many teams, it, it runs together sometimes. 244. I thought this was worth pointing out, even though it was a losing effort for uh, for Lycoming receiver um, Ryan Umpleby. 14 catches, 203 yards receiving in a losing effort. That smells like team of the week to me. Keith, I have a question for you. Who plays for the old Red Lantern? You know, I know a lot of wacky trophies. Um, and Ryan Tips and I were just talking a little bit uh, earlier or emailing back and forth on Saturday about... Um, you know, rivalry week and what angles we had, we have never done in around the nation. And uh, there's there's some wacky trophies. There's the wagon wheel, the stag hat, the bronze turkey, um, the drum, which is like a couple different drums, um, the Myron Claxton shoes, but I, I, I the Baird brothers. Um, but I, I have to be honest with you, I do not know who plays for the Red Lantern. I hadn't either uh, until I saw a tweet that said. Uh, Scots take rare loss to Big Red, 38-24, in Old Red Lantern series. And that's Worcester losing to Denison. And then Denison responds on Twitter. It says, uh, at Worcester Sports, Denison has taken three of the last five. Not so rare anymore. So, yeah, yeah, Denison uh, Denison getting uh, getting an old Red Lantern to take home and getting a little saucy on Twitter. I like that. Yeah, Twitter sniping. Very nice. Uh, coming up next week, uh, Wisconsin-Whitewater at Platteville. Uh, should be a uh, an interesting test for Whitewater. I mean, if, if Whitewater only won by 17 at home to Oshkosh, what do they do at Platteville? I don't suspect it'll be a problem, actually. But uh, that'll be interesting to see. Howard Simmons... Uh, is uh, traveling to Mary Harden Baylor. I think that's a, they called that some kind of uh, Baptist Bowl or something like that. Uh, the Willamette Linfield game, uh, Warburg at Buena Vista, Johns Hopkins at Ursinus, Bethel at Gustavus. A lot of these games, Keith, are uh, top teams in the conference against uh, teams that are hoping but probably not capable of really beating them. Sure, I mean, especially if if we go a little further further down the list. But yeah, the, uh, the Wartburg has not looked very beatable. So um, Buena Vista obviously will have to uh, play its best game. Or Sinus, Bethlehem, Gustavus, um, 
that that's maybe your fifth best team in the Mayak. We don't know. We, we obviously have to get it sorted out. And you mentioned uh, Whitewater at Platteville. Uh, that has been a pretty, it was a pretty good game. Was it two years ago? It was 27, 26. Yeah. Man, it's, it's, it's bad that you're right. run together. Um, anything that you, you, you don't research right before the show, you're almost <laughs> like just pu- pulling the file and hoping it's in there somewhere back in the brain. But, um, you know, Platteville, I, I think it had, had shown at one point that they can play with whitewater, but, uh, but the points are always hard to come by against the Warhawks. Uh, Buff State St. John Fisher, part of that uh, end of the season run that uh, Keith was talking about for Fisher. Uh, Oshkosh at Stevens Point. I think uh, as uh, you can see, Oshkosh uh, getting uh, getting up to 500 with uh, that game if they win that. Uh, Concordia Moorhead St. Thomas. We've talked about St. John's plays Augsburg as uh, that conference continues to shake itself out as well. It's hard. What's going to happen, possibly, uh, probably in the Empire 8, definitely Empire 8, possibly in the Mayak. And this happened, I think, last year. Uh, We have so many good teams that they actually all cannibalize each other. And you only have the automatic qualifier to get in the playoffs because every every other team that's at large possibility either has two losses or doesn't have strong enough you know, other playoff criteria, whether it's winning percentage, uh, strength of schedule, what have you, um, to, to get in the postseason. A uh, handful of other games coming up next week. Hampton Sydney's at Bridgewater. Cortland hosts Montclair State. Uh, MIT Endicott is now the uh, NEFC, continues to shake itself out in that Carroll McAllister game I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, I think just looking at this list kind of reminds us of of how things cycle. You know, even though the same teams are generally in that top six or eight or five to seven, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, it is kind of neat to see, you know, to talk about Buena Vista, Gustavus, um, you know, Montclair State is back, uh, MIT, Carroll, McAllister, all these uh, winning teams. Um, you know, so it's, it's funny. I'm... I, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence on whether there's there. This is just a, a year where there's not a whole lot of parity, or do we still have our parity? We just don't have it in at the very, very top. And even even then, we could maybe make the case as we get into the postseason that um, there's there's a, a handful of teams that that we could see get into Salem. Well, we will uh, see in the next few weeks. We got three weeks left of the regular season. Uh, the regional rankings start after week nine, so we still have another week and a half before we see those. Uh, of course, coming up the rest of the week, we've seen uh, Ryan Tip snap judgments already on Sunday, and of course the uh, new top twenty-five poll. And then we have uh, you know uh, around the region columns. We have team of the week deadline uh, for nominations at eight p.m. Eastern time on Monday. Uh, play of the week nomination deadline at five p.m. Eastern on Monday. So get us your video clips uh we mentioned around the region columns and then uh, around the nation another column from ryan tips on thursday he's keith mcmillan i'm pat coleman and that is the around the nation podcast thanks for joining us